Folks, welcome to Vintage Baseball Reflections. I am Tom, the baseball nostalgia guy, bringing you these treasured pieces. Do you miss the good old days of listening to baseball through radios? It was a classic pastime that stood for decades and shaped how we cherish baseball in our heroes. These stories are from a moment in time that were heard by fans just like you. They are uncut, unfiltered, simply here for you to enjoy. So I just want you to enjoy this reflection on baseball history. AFRS Sports Rio. The AFRS Sports Reel. 15 minutes of highlights and sidelights from the sporting scene brought to you by the nation's top flight sports commentators. With us today are Bill Brandt and Bob Kelly. In the 1946 World Series, there was a difference of opinion as to what one player could be called the GOAT of the series. Bill Brandt says this wasn't the case at all back in 1917. Here's a GOAT story, G-O-A-T, the all-time number one World Series GOAT. Nobody close. There's always a hero and always a GOAT. It's an old World Series custom. Sometimes it's hard to find the right GOAT. There's a lot of candidates. But this time, 1917, only one answer, Heine Zimmerman. Yes, nearly everything else about that series is long ago forgotten. Even Red Faber's three victories, one pitcher in one series. Everything except Heine Zim and his immortal gallop to glory. But it's the wrong kind of glory. Let's look at it. And here we are at New York's Polo Ground, October 15th, 1917. The sixth game of the series. The White Sox have the edge in games three to two. But here in New York, the Giants hold the edge, a big edge, two games. Both won by the Giants and both shutouts. The White Sox so far in this series have not even scored a single run here in New York. Their first shutout was by Rube Benton, giant southpaw from Clinton, North Carolina. And here's Big Benton today, pitching for the Giants, going into the fourth inning, heading for another shutout. If Rube makes it, it ties up the series, three games to three. It's Benton against Faber, nothing-nothing after three innings. And here comes the fourth. And here goes the Benton shutout. And here also goes the ball game. And goodbye, world championship. But it's not only here goes, but how it goes. This is the story that lives down the years. That first run scored by the White Sox in the last game of the series. Here we go. First White Sox batter, Eddie Collins. Yes, Collins of the Hall of Fame. General manager Collins of today's Boston Red Sox. In 1917, Eddie's socks are white. And here's the pitch. Collins rolls a grounder to second base. Right at the Giants' third baseman, Heine Zimmerman, a New York City boy. The throw to first, it's wild, it gets away. There goes Collins to second base, safe. Next batter, Joe Jackson, shoeless Joe from Brandon Mills, North Carolina. One of the great hitters of all time. The pitch, the big swing, but Benton's a tough pitcher. It's just a pop fly to short right field. There's the right fielder under it. Dave Robertson from Portsmouth, Virginia. No, it gets away. A muff. Jackson safe on first base. Collins tagging up at second, rushing over to third. Men on first and third, nobody out. Two rank errors. Could you blame Rube Benton if he cracks wide open right now? Does Rube Benton blow up? Well, here's the next batter, Oscar Felch. Happy Felts from Milwaukee. The pitch, the swing. Boy, this Benton has what it takes. Look, that big swing only hits a feeble bounder right back to the pitcher's box. On one hop, and Benton has it. And what's he going to do? He can get a double play if he throws to second base quick. But there's Collins on third. Collins will score even if it's a double play. There's nobody out, you know. And it spoils that shutout. And it puts the Sox ahead, one to nothing. 
So Benton decides to go after Collins. Where's Collins? There he is, three jumps off a third base, heading home. Benton turns, Collins stops in his tracks. Collins stands still. What can he do? He's a dead duck if he tries to dive back to third base. He's a deader duck if he goes for home plate. So Collins freezes. Collins waits for Benton to throw, then he'll duck the other way. But Benton refuses to throw. Benton waits for Collins to make a move. Everybody else in the ballpark's moving, either moving or yelling. Jackson and Felch are running for their bases. Giants are running and yelling both. The whole ballpark full of fans is screaming. But Benton looks at Collins, and Collins looks at Benton. Then Collins moves, but it's neither one way or the other. It's just a move of the arm. Collins waves his arm to Jackson and Felch. Look at them over behind Benton, running for their bases. Collins waves, hurry! And that sudden wave of Collins's arm brings action from Benton. Benton throws the ball to third base, to Zimmerman. Now Collins jumps the other way, for home plate. But Zimmerman has a flying start. Zimmerman is after Collins with the ball, tries to tag him out. But Eddie Collins, in 1917, is the fastest man alive on a baseline. Collins gathers speed with every stride. Zimmerman gets close enough for one more slap at Collins, almost tags Collins, but after that miss, there's no more chance. Step by step, Collins opens up distance. Collins is a step and a half ahead when they both cross home plate. A run for the White Sox, their first run in New York this whole series. And there's Zimmerman, standing on home plate, slapping the ball in his glove. What else can he do with it? Jackson is on third, Felch is on second, the umpire calls time. And now the 50,000 fans are filling the air with that awful sound, the rhubarb chorus, a howling serenade of ridicule and jeers. And there's Heine the Zim, standing on home plate and taking it all alone by himself. It's his own home grounds in his own hometown. And there he stands on home plate, the goat. Well, that's the breakup of the series. The next thing's a single by Chick Gandle. Jackson and Felch go across the plate. It's three runs for the Sox in this fourth inning, and they win the game, four to two. And that ends the series, four games to two. The White Sox are world champions, and Zim is the GOAT. Thank you, Bill Brandt. We'll listen for one of your famous once-in-a-lifetime yarns later in the show. But first, here's Bob Kelly and a story about a truly great golfer. Take it away, Bob. Walter Hagen will ever be remembered for his golfing deeds, and even though he may be an old gaffer with his golden past behind him, he probably can still bounce out on the green lush fairways and knock off a sensational round of golf against the world's best players today. What memories go swirling by at the mere mention of the name of Walter Hagen? One will never forget the first time Hagen went to England. He'd never been east of the Ambrose Lightship before, but because he had cleaned up everything in golfing sight in this country, he went across the bounding sea to match drives with the Vardens, Braids, and other such golf immortals who were the headmen of golf at that time. No American before had ever been successful at St. Andrews. Englishmen had crushed them quickly every time some American showed his head on English turf. The ancient game of golf up to that time was all English, and so Britannia ruled the fairways with a stern golf hand. But that hardly bothered the brash rookie, Walter Hagen. He arrived there, and his first remark was, I'll chase all you bums into the Atlantic Ocean. I never saw an Englishman yet who could play golf or anything else, for that matter. And so what happened? The boastful Hagen was soundly trounced and sent back home to the States. But that hardly disturbed Walter. He laughed and said, I'll be back next year. But they hooted him home. When another year rolled around, Walter Hagen came back to England and won every title that wasn't nailed down and even a few that were. And among other things, he played a most amusing little drama with the former King of England, then the Prince of Wales, and now the Duke of Windsor. He was invited to play this royal personage a round of golf. On the day of the game, the Prince of Wales arrived but had to wait for two hours. But no Hagen showed up. Finally, as the Prince was about to pack up his clubs and go back to his castle, Walter Hagen breezed along in a big fancy Rolls-Royce limousine. 
He leaped out and, grinning cheerfully, said to the Prince of Wales, Sorry, son, but my alarm clock misfired. Drive off, kid. It's your honor. Probably the last one you'll get today. And indeed it was, for he gave the prince as royal a golf beating as it is possible to do. And when it was all over, he grinned cheerfully and waved his hand, jumped into his car and shouted, Goodbye, princey old boy. Glad to give you the treat to play with a great Walter Hagen. Yes, such was Walter Hagen in his golden prime. His every move was splashed with large dabs of bright color and breathless moments of thrills. Indeed, he was one golfer who will never be forgotten whenever the 19th hole is played. Thanks to you, Bob Kelly. Now here's Bill Brandt with a tale about the first college football game of all time. It took place in 1869, 77 years ago. In 1946, Princeton mauled a visiting Rutgers team 14-7, but it was a different story that first of all collegiate football games. In 69, it was across New Jersey at New Brunswick on the Raritan River, Rutgers. And Rutgers won that one six goals to four, and they rang the bell on top of Queens College, victory. And that old bell is also ringing out the birth of intercollegiate football, a sport destined to step up top, number one in America, every time the autumn leaves turn to gold. Down the years after that, the game of football grew big and tall, and it spread from coast to coast. Rutgers played Princeton again and again, but the old bell never rang. Why? Because it's always victory for Princeton. The old bell had nothing to say. Sixty-nine years rolled by. Thirty-five times it's Rutgers against Princeton. The winner, always Princeton. Now it's 1938. Rutgers has a new stadium and a new coach, a big, firm-jawed coach named Harvey Harmon. He learned football from Pop Warner at Pitt. He coached Haverford and Siwani in Pennsylvania. Now here in 1938, Harvey Harmon's moving in at Rutgers. And it's dedication day for the brand new stadium, November the 5th. The actual birthday of football was the 6th, but in 1938, the 6th is Sunday. And this birthday party here at Rutgers is really a triple header. The new stadium, the game of football, and the new coach. Yes, it's Harvey Harmon's birthday, too. How about a present for the coach? Victory over Princeton. Oh, that's a large order. Princeton's a higher league. Rutgers, just a country cousin upstate. No chance. Up in a little booth near the press box, a warm booth with glass windows, here's George H. Large, Rutgers' old grad, class of 1872. George Large played in that first football game of all time, back in 69. He's the only man alive who ever saw Rutgers beat Princeton. He can say, I was there. The only man alive who ever heard the bell, that old bell on top of Queens College. And now it's the kickoff, and it looks as if George Large is going to continue to be the one and only. Look, Rutgers is pinned against their own goal line, a kick. It's blocked. Princeton's ball on Rutgers' seven-yard line. Here's a flying tiger, Jack Daniel, from Jacksonville, Florida. An end-around play. There he goes. Touchdown. No extra point, but it's very early. There goes a big six up on the board for Princeton. Yes, that long lane, 69 years, always leading to victory for Princeton. Guess that lane won't ever turn. But Rutgers has a halfback from Brooklyn. Art Gottlieb, the kickoff. Art Gottlieb gets it. He's off the 30, the 40. He's across midfield, all the way to Princeton's 40-yard line. Now Gottlieb fires a forward pass, complete. It's the Parker Staples from Dedham, Massachusetts. He takes it to Princeton's eight-yard line. Come on, Rutgers! The lineup, it's the Rutgers fullback, Bill Tronovich from Norwood, Massachusetts. Into the line, five yards. Now Tronovich again, he's over, touchdown. Now the try for point. The kicker, Len Cook, Rutgers left tackle from Amityville, New York. Good. Rutgers seven, Princeton six. Get ready, Bell. The roar of the crowd makes the old Bell quiver a bit in the tower. But now that's too good to be true. Here's the Tigers snarling. Here's the second period. The Tigers claw their way up the field. It's a pass. Daniel gets it. Rutgers' five-yard line. He's down. There's the ball jumping out of his arms. It's over the goal line. And a swarm of players on top of it. And they're mostly Tigers. And yes, it's Dick Purnell, Princeton man from Baltimore. Touchdown for Princeton. 
Again, no extra point, but it's 12 to 7, and the scarlet of Rutgers turns back again to deep purple, and it gets deeper and deeper. Princeton has a fine forward passer, Stanley Pearson, Jr., son of the national squash champion from Chestnut Hill, Pennsylvania. Pearson passes again and again. Now it's the Tigers' ball on the two-yard line. Now Pearson gets tired of passing. He fakes a pass, then he walks over the goal line. No extra point, but it's 18-7 to for Princeton, and deep purple gloom on the banks of the old Raritan. Two minutes to play in the first half. Now the new Rutgers coach sends in a new set of plays. Look at Rutgers go. Nine plays, 62 yards. Now a pass, complete. The ball on Princeton's one-yard line. The Rutgers passer now is Herman Greif, a New Brunswick local boy. He fakes a throw, then he dives at the line, the gun. End of the half, but Greif's over. The play was on when the gun went off. It counts. So it's Princeton 18, Rutgers 13. And it's that way all through the third period. A red-hot battle, no score. And the fourth period grinds away. It's nearly over. Here's Rutgers punting from midfield. A muff. Rutgers gets the ball on Princeton's 12-yard line. Now Gottlieb is passing again for Rutgers. Three blanks. Now it's fourth down. There it goes. Another pass complete to Jack Mullen in the end zone. Touchdown for Rutgers. And the extra point. Now it's Rutgers 20, Princeton 18. Now the Tigers snarl back with Super Tiger fury. The gun. That's all. Game's over. And the crowd stampedes. It rolls over the field and it buries the Rutgers bench. And it showers congratulations on the Rutgers coach. His birthday punches 100 for every year of his life. But listen. Bing. Bong. It's a bell. Hey, it's the old bell on top of Queens College. It never rang for 69 years. That's a long time for a bell to hold its tongue. But there it is. Music for the triple birthday. The game of football. Rutgers' new stadium. Rutgers' new coach. And something extra. Victory over Princeton. The first time in 69 years. The first since 1869. And how about George Large? Rutgers, class of 72. The only man alive from that 1869 Rutgers team. He can say, I'm the only man who ever saw Rutgers lick Princeton. I'm the only man who ever heard that bell. Well, here's George Large now. And he looks out across the treetops at the old Queen's Tower. The bell. And he says, old girl, you and I, we're the only ones who ever saw it happen twice. This is the Armed Forces Radio Service, the voice of information and education. VintageBaseballReflections.com features a treasure chest of baseball audio. The wonderful thing is the audio isn't a guy like me or a few talking heads reflecting on players, seasons, or teams. It is the actual players from that era, announcers from that era, giving you an uncut, unfiltered, unrecent day stance on what it was like then. These are real-time clips from that era. Now, we encourage you to check out our entire back catalog of baseball audio. And if you like old-time games, and folks, and folks, you are not alone. Join the membership section to enjoy interacting with fans, scoring games with folks just like you, and listening to hundreds of radio broadcasts that were baseball classics. As a special offer to you, type in This Day in Baseball for a discount just for you. And if you enjoyed the show, hit the plus sign to subscribe, follow us on the socials, and above all, share us with your friends who love baseball history just like 